Hey, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. I have a fantastic guest for you today, Michael Krigsman. You may very well know him. He's the publisher of CXO Talk, and he's an industry analyst that focuses on disruption and customer experience. His work has been referenced in over 50 books and been in thousands of articles and publications. And he has, I believe it's over 1,500 interviews with leading executives at major companies around the world. And so I'm so excited to have him here today. Tell us about some of the things he's learned. Michael, welcome. And please add anything you'd like to my introduction. Oh, Howard, it's great to see you. Thank you so much. No, you've covered it pretty well. So thanks a lot. One of the reasons I love talking to you is because of all the people you've talked to. I've had the privilege in my life of working with many companies, but not thousands. And so I can only imagine how much you have had the opportunity to learn and synthesize from speaking to so many senior executives. And I'd love to just start by asking you, what have you learned from all these conversations with so many executives talking about disruption and customer experience? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the people I speak with are changing the world literally in one way or another. They're the most innovative people. And I think there are a few common threads. Number one is contrary to the public perception of these great people, they're in many cases really nice, straightforward, down to earth, and pretty easy to talk to. And I think this is an important point because these are idea people and they're execution people and they work with teams and it's the teams that ultimately are responsible for the success or failure of execution of executing a business strategy or a business idea and so the personal attributes of being respectful of being willing to listen of accepting other people's ideas are extremely important and so I think this is a common attribute and a, a little bit of a surprising one that I've observed over interviewing. It hasn't been thousands, but it's been a lot over interviewing all of these folks. Yeah, that is surprising. It's not inconsistent with my own experience. I certainly met a variety of people of different personality types, but you know, you have that image of someone like a Steve Jobs, the slave driver, the very tough figure, but I can see the logic behind why you know, business is such a team sport. And when you need to get large numbers of people rallied around something, I can imagine that might be a survival characteristic or a success characteristic to really be someone people want to work for. Well, I think, you know, there's this popular image of the leader as prima donna. And I think there are examples of that, of people who are just so brilliant and so great. I mean, Steve Jobs obviously comes to mind. Their personality characteristics, their charisma, is accompanied by a level of toxic interaction. And regardless of how they interact, you're gonna deal with them and you're gonna listen and follow because of just their personal greatness. There are not many Steve Jobs out there. For most of us mortal people, including folks who are great leaders, it is necessary to work with others. And the ability to work with others in a team and create diverse teams is crucially important. Yeah, I love that message. I, I certainly agree with it 
Well, let me ask you another question about what you've seen and heard and speaking to so many executives. We've been going through a time of great change, of course, and the change doesn't seem to stop, right? First, we were on already a rapid digital transformation trajectory, and then we had this change into the COVID world. And now, obviously, as we're doing whatever we're doing now, starting to emerge out of COVID, change keeps on coming. What have you seen as you've been continuing to kind of have your finger on the pulse of leaders of some of the biggest companies? What have you seen, if anything, changing as so much change has happened over the last few years? You know, I think the the common, what's almost become a cliche these days is that the last year or so has compressed the time frame for digital transformation from some, you know, say five years into a number of months when companies were making that transition. I think there are a few levels here. Number one, just on a technology capability level. Uniformly, business leaders have told me, and especially CIOs and CTOs, have told me that it was their investment in cloud, in technologies that enabled them to be agile, that allowed them to do the rapid cutover. Again, I'm speaking with the most innovative leaders. So these are folks who are really on top of things. So it's that investment in cloud that gave their organization the foundation, the platform capabilities. Beyond that, there was a very biding focus on the well-being of employees, on not just customer experience, but employee experience. And obviously, employee experience and customer experience are very linked, but there's been this real emphasis on employee experience. As far as the where are things going, it's an open question, but it is very clear that we're not going back to the way things were. The idea of working from anywhere is here to stay. That, that means from a technology standpoint, you need to have a zero trust network set up. You need to have the security in place because wherever your employees are, they're going to be part of your network and they have to be secure. From a cultural standpoint, it raises some questions. For example, how do we get new hires or even our existing folks to feel like they're part of a team when that team is distributed and they're not getting together very often? And then the question comes up, how do we encourage spontaneous interaction that the spontaneous conversations from which serendipity arises? as opposed to planned formal meetings. So this issue of what comes next and how do we get there, it's kind of a non-trivial and pretty complicated point. Yeah, I apologize in advance for doing the, the classic interview or turnaround, but you've asked some really key questions there. And I'm curious, what do you think the answer to this? How do you keep that kind of team culture and connection and spontaneity in a world where people are working so remotely? You know, I wish I had some sort of magic silver bullet answer. I recently did a webinar for Slack, and this was one of the key points that came up. And Slack did a survey, and they asked people, and this it's an important point for folks, when we go back to partially working in the office, clearly being able to have team meetings is going to help a lot. And I think there's a lot of pent-up demand for at least some touch points in the office. Beyond that, the right type of collaboration tools so that you can have those kind of serendipity conversations 
And at the same time, I think we've gotten away from the endless Zoom kind of cocktail happy hours where people weren't so happy because they felt an obligation to attend. So hopefully we're getting away from that. But I can tell you this, that that one common thread is the recognition that this is important and the willingness to invest the time and the effort to help people feel included and part of the team. That's really a major factor is the effort that you put into it. No, that makes sense. And, and you've made a few really important points. I think the use of tools like Slack or other things as a way of keeping the dialogue going and the way you, you conduct meetings. And we've been robbed or whatever you want to call it of that opportunity to be in physical proximity for a while. It maybe makes people even more yearn for that when they get back together for that in-person interaction to really make it count. Don't just sit in your cubicle and text each other. You know? Figure out how to use that in-person proximity when you have it to really cement relationships and be able to work together in ways that you can't do on Zoom and things like that. I think the relationship aspect is underestimated most of the time by many people. It is really essential to invest in these relationships and ensure that the relationships are not just transactional. And I think this is a key point, especially for working together with physical proximity. It's very easy for you to say, oh, Michael, you know, can you do this, do this, do this? And I see your body language and, and there is some connection there. When you translate that into a Zoom meeting, the connection is, is lost and it just comes across like, you know, you're giving me a bunch of orders. Okay, fine. It's my job. I'm going to do that. But it does require extra effort and really thinking about like I say, the non-transactional parts of the relationship, the body language and the body English. What other challenges have you talked about with in your interviews or just in your consulting and sort of industry analyst work that companies are facing today around this continued push towards digital transformation, whether it's in the COVID context or the coming out of COVID or even, even beforehand? What are some of the biggest challenges you've seen companies have when you talk to them about that? Well, I think customer experience is such an important one. And obviously that's your focus and you've written a great book about this topic. So when I talk, for example, with chief information officers, customer experience has, has really risen to being at the top of the list. But the real question then becomes, how do we take this broad concept of customer experience and operationalize it? So we can have the intention to do the right thing by our customers, but how do we take, for example, customer feedback and then incorporate that across silos, departments inside our company to improve the product? What's, for example, is the feedback mechanism? And what kind of tools and capabilities, analytics tools, for example, do we need in order to gather the data. So I think these kind of nuts and bolts challenges are very common right now, as we recognize that, yeah, customers really, really do matter. We have to make customers feel delighted, but how do we do that? How do we go about it? That's where the rubber meets the road. And I think it becomes hard, it's challenging. Yeah, I agree, I agree. Are there any companies that you see that you think are doing that particularly well that others might look to as an inspiration? 
you know, you can look across different segments. I think what comes to mind first are the born digital companies that are basically cloud companies. And I hate to use the example of Apple or Amazon because everybody uses those examples, but there's a reason people use them. They naturally are collecting data because they're digital. And at the same time, they understand and they have the tools to analyze that data. And so when you're shopping on Amazon, for example, and an, they present an ad to you, meaning another product, you know, take a look at this. Very often, those ad presentations, you react, oh, yeah, this makes sense. You know, this is interesting. And less so do you, at least for me, do I feel this is spam and I hate this. This is absolutely irrelevant for me. On the other hand, if you're browsing on Facebook, Facebook does a, sometimes a good job and sometimes a really, really bad job, right? I'm sure you've had the experience you're browsing the newsfeed on Facebook and you see this stuff and it's like, why are they showing me this? They're just annoying ads. Right. Last week I had to buy you know, uh, garbage bags, but now... Everybody wants to sell me garbage bags. Like I'm going to be buying thousands of boxes of garbage bags of every size, shape, and color and every brand. It's like, guys, enough with the garbage bags. I already bought them. I'm done. Right. And that's a, that's a perfect example of really poor personalization where Facebook has all of this data, but somehow you bought garbage bags and yet they're not sophisticated to understand that your life is not built around garbage bags, and yet they continue to act as if you are. I think other examples of companies that have done a good job is if you look at, for example, in retail, there's some good examples of Target, which made a very good transition after the pandemic started to having pickups and omni-channel experience where you can buy offline in the stores, or buy online, have it shipped to you, and then return it offline into a physical store. So I think that there are quite a number of good examples of companies that have listened. You know, they've listened to what the customers want, but we're talking about it. And the reason we're talking about it is because it is a complicated problem to have the data platform where you're collecting the data to have the analytics capabilities where you can sort through that data, to have the presentation capabilities where you can take the results of sorting through that data that you've collected and now personalize the advertising or the presentation for the people who are showing up at your site. There's a lot of moving parts to this. Yeah, and it's gonna be interesting to see how some of these new privacy regulations impact companies' ability to do that because to really understand the full picture of someone's life, you can't only have the data from one merchant, right? You have to be able to somehow understand how that cuts across. And yet that's being prevented more and more by some of these new regulations and by what Apple's doing. So well, I guess we'll see what the impact of that is, uh, but you're right, it's very challenging. And yet those that are most successful are the ones that are figuring out how to overcome those challenges and do it. Because clearly yeah. pro proactive personalization is one of the th key components of the brands that are winning in digital. Without a doubt, I think the data is the key thing. You can buy really good tools off the shelf from, there are quite a number of software companies that will sell you the tools 
to slice and dice and apply personalization based on, on the data. But the hard part is gathering the right type of data in sufficient quantities that the tools can work their magic. Again, that, that in and of itself is a, is a hard problem. You know, where are you getting the data? What kind of data are you collecting? And then immediately you run into the privacy issue that Howard, you just raised that we have to stay within the law. But even aside from staying within the law, we have to be careful not to be creepy to our customers. If our customers feel that we know too much about them, then it starts to feel invasive. And we have then a kind of reverse customer experience instead of magnetizing and drawing the customers to us because we're giving them what they want. We're kind of saying, stay away, stay away, because you know too much. And what are you doing with this data? And I don't trust your brand anyway, and I'm not going to buy from you. Just go away from me. Yeah. I'm curious now, have you had something like that happen that creeped you out recently? I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I'm kind <laughs> of used to it. And I know, you know, how these tools work, but sure. I mean, I see things and I say, how did you know that? Right. Right. Where did you get that data? Why do you have that data? And I'm not good with that. I think we've all experienced that. I've heard this story and it hasn't happened to me, but I've heard it from a number of people where they say they had a conversation about something. They claim, didn't email anybody, didn't text anybody, didn't search anything. They just spoke to someone about it. And then all of a sudden they're seeing ads on Facebook or something, you know, and then they're thinking, is my Alexa in the room? Like who heard that conversation? Now that could be people just starting to get paranoid, you know, <laughs> like looking for those patterns. But I've heard that some version of that story probably five times in the last six months. My own theory is, well, maybe they searched something and they forgot, but I don't know. They say, no, I didn't. I absolutely didn't. So I don't know. Maybe they're listening. I'm not sure. I've definitely had that experience, but I do chalk it up to most likely I was searching for something or I was going to say I sent an email. Hopefully that's not the case because, you know, we don't want Gmail kind of listening in. And especially if it's the paid version of Gmail with no ads. But I think it goes to the level of distrust that we have for these large tech platform social companies that we would even have this conversation. I mean, I, I'm assuming Google's not reading all of my emails, but maybe they are. And if they are, how would I even know if they're clever about the way that they use that data so as not to be overly invasive? How would you even know? And do you trust them in the first place? If they say they don't, does that mean they don't in all instances? Or if we read the fine print on the terms of service, well, no, they don't, except the foregoing notwithstanding in this <laughs> right. situation. The party of the first part, that. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. Well, and even if we don't trust them, are we so at this point dependent on the conveniences that they give us that even if we didn't trust them, we wouldn't be willing to do something about it. Are, are we so reliant on Uber having all our payment methods and knowing where we live and or Domino's knowing what kind of pizza we like or whatnot, that even if we thought there was something creepy, all we could do is complain because we're certainly not going to go back. Are our people prepared to have less convenience offered to them in exchange for a reduction in the data that's stored and their loss, some loss of privacy? Yeah, I wonder about that. I mean, look, I can tell you for me personally, I've just given up. I accept that these services are a part of my life. I joined 
the Google Advanced Protection Program, which is a, a more secure version of Gmail, because I know because of who I interview, I know that I'm a target. I've seen just a series of really well-targeted phishing attacks against me personally. But, you know, look, Google has my data. I use these services. These services are beneficial. I understand that if you don't pay for something, although I do pay for Gmail, you know, Google apps, but nonetheless, I do understand if you don't pay for something, then you are the product. And it's a personal choice I've made. But as I say, I've also been very careful from a security standpoint. Again, it's one of these things where I think it's philosophical. It comes down to either a philosophical choice, a decision that you're making, or making a default tacit decision to accept it because you're not knowledgeable about what's really going on with these platform companies. Mm -hmm. Either way, with, it amounts to the same thing. And maybe with this next generation of customers, they don't care anyway. They're putting their lives up on Snapchat and Instagram. They're not as you know, concerned about what everybody knows. I don't know. Well, there is that. We live in the Instagram or now the TikTok age. You know, I disclose on social media what I want to disclose. I'm careful what I disclose and careful what I don't. Not everybody feels that way. I've, you know, made that very clear demarcation since the beginning of Twitter. I joined Twitter when it started, I think in 2007. Take your poison. What poison would you like today, Howard? Well, actually, since you mentioned Twitter, I'm, I'm curious what you think of the latest, which is, of course, Clubhouse. And I'm curious if you have a point of view as someone who's in the, the talk business. Obviously, this is the big new social media platform focused on not only business talk, but a lot of it I notice on there is business related talk. Have you plunged into Clubhouse and do you have a, a prediction of point of view about it? I'm a member of Clubhouse. I've been invited to be a moderator in some Clubhouse chats, which I haven't done, to be honest. I've listened to a few. This is heresy. And okay, brand me as an absolute Luddite for saying this. I don't find it to be all that compelling. I understand why many people do find it to be compelling, and I respect that. But right now, we have an awful lot of social outlets. And I think this relates directly back to customer experience, that one of the tenets of customer experience is being where your customers are, where, where your customers are congregating, that's where you should be. So if they're on TikTok or Instagram or Clubhouse, absolutely. But it also speaks to the intense level of competition. So for us, we create videos, we're really good at it. We get incredible engagement of our videos on YouTube. Our typical video sees between, I don't know, 15, 20,000 views on YouTube. But what's more important than the views is the amount of time that people spend watching. People say to me, oh, if, a video, if our video gets 15,000 people watch or whatever, and av the average is watching for three minutes, that's great. I mean, for us, what I want to see is an average view duration across those 15,000 people of 20 minutes. We've invested, gone all in on video, and that's where we tend to focus as opposed to Clubhouse. By the way, you asked, you know, what I think the prognosis for Clubhouse is. I think it's going to become a niche location for exactly this reason. There's too much social media competition, too many outlets for people to express themselves. And now as we move back into this hybrid work environment of some at home and some 
in the office. I think the amount of time that people are going to spend and have available to both listen to Clubhouse as well as to participate is going to decline. And the recent numbers have borne this out, but we'll see what happens over the, the next six months. Interesting. Yeah, it's always tough to know when you're jumping early on Twitter, like you did, or whether you're just putting all kinds of energy into the next second life or something that's going to be gone, you know, and have turned out to be a fad. It's really tough to predict. Yeah, it's tough to predict. You know, it also, I think it depends, you know, when it comes to social media strategically, what are you using it for? Why are you on social media? What are you hoping to gain? And there's all kinds of different reasons, right? You, you can, can be interacting with knowledgeable people. It can be building your personal brand. It can be just expressing your opinion. So why are you doing it? And I think that then leads to which social media platforms you should invest your time in. Yeah, makes sense. Well, on that point, you've produced so much amazing content. I want to ask you to just take a moment and make sure everybody knows. I imagine a lot of our listeners are already listeners of CXO Talk, but just in case anyone's not familiar, can you make sure they understand what it is and where to find it and how they can get more Michael Krigsman content because there's so much good stuff out there. Yeah, thank you. CXO Talk is an interview platform where we speak with literally people shaping the future, the most innovative, smartest people in the world. These are in-depth conversations. They're not sound bites. Simply go to cxotalk.com and there are links there to our videos and to podcasts and there's transcripts of all of these conversations. There's a huge amount of material and I think people seem to like it and seem to find it helpful. And I hope that you, if you're listening, that you will find it helpful. I'm sure you will. It's great stuff. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for being here. A really, really interesting conversation touched on a lot of fascinating topics. I thank all of you, as always, for listening and for watching another episode of the Winning Digital Customers podcast. I look forward to seeing you next time.